0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for the words of that song that, that, that we've been reconciled to you, that we've been justified, that we've been made right with you. We thank you for that. It's just an amazing gift. That the the biggest burden we could ever carry in this life has already been lifted by Jesus Christ. We're so thankful. Lord, as we open this text, we pray, Lord, that you give us insight and understanding. Help us to be a people that know how to minister in our own age that you put us in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Sunday we're in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And I see you guys turning to it or getting out of your Bible. That's a great idea. I'm going to run right through the text. You're going to want to see it. Otherwise, it is a very visual thing. You've got to look at the text. You've got to see all the parts to really enjoy this. This text fits into an overall argument that Paul's making in Romans. Um, he's going to bring up our sin. And he's not going to bring up our sin because Paul just likes talking about our sin. Paul's going to bring up our sins so that we know that we need Jesus, so that we know we need the gospel. So this section of Romans is all about building the case that everyone needs Jesus, okay? And, and that makes sense. I mean, You need to know the bad news before you can enjoy the good news, right? You would not be excited about a sign that said, free chemotherapy, unless you knew yourself to have cancer, right? It's the same thing with the gospel. Once we know our need for Jesus, then it really is the good news. And so what we're going to see in this text, Romans 1, 18 through 32, is that pagans need Jesus, okay? This would be people that aren't particularly religious people. This is talking about just the culture at large needs Jesus. And if you feel like you're off the hook on this one, next week is religious people need Jesus, and that's chapter 2. And then Gabe's going to do the beginning of chapter 3, which is everyone needs Jesus. So we're going to pagans need Jesus, religious people need Jesus, everyone needs Jesus. So that's what we're doing this morning. This text, guys, also helps us to understand what's going on in our culture right now. There's a good chance you've looked around at our culture and thought, how did we get here? What happened? Was I asleep? Did I miss something? Because everything just kind of went crazy all of a sudden, Right. And even if you take out coronavirus and all the other things that happen, if you look at the past 10 years or so, you wonder, how did we get here? You guys are actually living through an extremely accelerated time of cultural change. Everybody thinks that their time is this wild time. This really is the wild time, just so you know. If we look at our culture, we can see you know crazy things like the idea of gender fluidity on the left side of, of our culture. But then we see crazy stuff on the right side, don't we? We see things, crazy conspiracy theories, crazy thinking, crazy stories people are telling themselves. It's not just you. Our world is mad, okay? Things are nuts. And this text actually helps us understand why. Because you live in a very disorienting time. This will actually help you orient. So why are things so crazy in our culture? And the answer might surprise you. It's the wrath of God being revealed. That's what this text says. It's the wrath of God being revealed. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed, From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is wrath? Wrath is not commonly spoken of in the church. We talk about it a lot, but you won't hear it commonly throughout our culture. God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising opposition to evil in all its forms. Wrath is not an attribute of God, it's not something that he has within himself. Um, Before creation, God didn't have any wrath because there was no sin to be wrathful towards. It's God's response. It's his justice. It's his righteousness responding to sin. And it's never him flying off the handle or losing his, you know, his cool or anything like that. It's a steady, unremitting, predictable response to evil. And notice in this text, it says the wrath of God is revealed. What tense is that? It's present tense. You guys might go like, oh, how is it revealed? We're going to get to that. But in some way, the wrath of God was already being revealed in that first century Roman context, and it's being revealed even today. And that's what this text is about. As we look at this text, and we'll see that our pervasive collapse of our culture, just like the Roman culture of that time, is due to God's wrath being revealed. We're going to see why is the wrath of God being revealed? How is the wrath of God being revealed? And then, how do we as God's people minister in this chaotic, crazy time? So, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The wrath of God is God's response to humanity intentionally rejecting what they already know. This text shows us that God has revealed himself in nature, he's revealed himself even within us, and yet we've responded by suppressing that truth. And I think as I say that and you think about your own life, you can be like, yeah, there was a time. You know, Some of you grew up in the church, you don't ever remember a time like that in your life. But some of you very clearly remember a time where you suppressed the truth. So what do all people know to be true? What, what do all people know to be true? Verse 19 says that all people know God exists. Okay, this is a bit controversial and I'll tell you a story about it in a second. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them Because God has shown it to them, and he's saying just people in general. This text says that that people suppress that truth. I was doing a Bible study when when I was in vet school. I was doing it with some of the other vet students, and it was a friend of mine who's a believer and a couple of non-believers, and we're going through the text, and uh, we're going through John, and somehow we cross-reference over here, and what I like to do is have them read the text, and so I had my friend read this text, and uh, he he reads where they suppress the truth. He, right after he got done reading, he goes, "Suppress the truth," and he went, "Suppressed," like that. Well, wow, it really echoed. <laughs> Suppressed. It was the craziest thing—the way he kind of reacted. It was like it hit a nerve, and his his friend that was there that wasn't a believer started laughing and looking at him, like, "What are you doing?" You know. But it hit a nerve because all people do know, on some level, that God exists. That verse nineteen says, "All people also know something of His invisible attributes." Look at verse twenty. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. There's another thing of like, God's made it clear. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So as we look out on creation and we see the world he's made and we see each other, we can see God's power and his creativity and his faithfulness. David talked about that a lot last week. We can also see his kindness and his generosity as we look out in creation. Paul said to the people in Lystra who had never been exposed to the Bible, he said, God has not left himself without a witness, for he did you good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful season and satisfied your heart with food and gladness. In some way, God has a relationship with every single human being where he has shown himself. Well, what have we done with that knowledge? we've suppressed the truth. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. It's important to define ungodliness. There's unrighteousness and ungodliness there. They're actually different words. Ungodliness doesn't just necessarily mean a whole list of sins. It means living in such a way as if God doesn't exist. Okay? It means living in a world where you are denying God's existence, his goodness, his power, his presence. That's ungodliness. Now, ungodliness does lead to all kinds of unrighteousness. But it starts, guys, in this text with ungodliness. Look at verse 28. It says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. What is that saying? It's saying that all of us at some point in our lives, we judged God unfit to occupy our minds. Thoughts of God we found unfit to occupy our minds. That's pretty bad, isn't it? You know, that we would we judged God unfit to be in our minds, right? Why would we do that? Why would we do such thing? I mean, we have this God that's created this beautiful place. Um, he's, you know, with his power, made this beautiful creation, done all these things for us. Why would we choose to suppress the knowledge of God and reject him? And verse 18 says, it says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So what's that saying? Seeing the reason why we suppress the truth about God is we don't want to be told what to do, right? Would you guys agree to that? We don't want to be told what to do. And so we suppress that. And it's so crazy that we don't want to be told what to do so much that we're willing to sacrifice all meaning and truth and the love of God because we don't want to be told what to do. We prefer, guys, as human beings, we tend to prefer a God that's vague and distant, if we believe in one at all. And we can all own that. This text has that kind of like, yeah, those people out there. It's like, no, 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 no. All this stuff is stuff that we've experienced. When I read this text, I feel like it's reading my life experience. I bet you feel the same way. So that's ungodliness and it's pervasive throughout our culture. And that's the thing that's corroding our entire culture. Okay. The next step in this is not acknowledging God and then not honoring him, thanking him. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. This is shocking too, or it should be, that we'd be given all these things and not turn around and honor and thank the one who gave them to us. I mean, if we really are creations of a being and we've been blessed with all the things in our lives from a person, it would be totally right to like acknowledge that and thank him, wouldn't it? That'd be a really reasonable, that'd be like just step one, like at least be thankful, right? But we don't do that. We tend to enjoy all that God made and believe that we have no one to thank for it but ourselves. Like, well, I worked really hard, you know? Well, you know, I'm not like those other people. I've really, you know, put in the effort. I've been a good person and things like that. So we've got not acknowledging him, not honoring him, not thanking him. And then we have what sets in after that is moral confusion. Look at verse 21. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Um, we, we lack wisdom as we transition away from God, as we reject God. Our wisdom leaves us. Wisdom is knowledge of reality. Okay, wisdom is knowledge of reality. And when you deny the most fundamental thing about reality, God, you're not off to a good start. Okay, when the first thing you do is deny the most fundamental thing of reality, God, you're not off to a good start. When we start suppressing the truth, that truth then our ability to understand truth in general unravels. And why wouldn't it? I mean, if we deny the most important fact, we're going to start to unravel. And we see that in our culture, guys. It's amazing the things that 21st century people are able to believe. Okay? Has anybody felt like, are we in the dark ages? Anybody felt like, like, this is strange. Like, why have we forgotten so many things that seem so elementary? Things like, we talked about a couple weeks ago, that the unborn, our culture believes the unborn are not human. You know, and we went through and made a case for it. And some of your response to that is like, well, why does anybody believe otherwise? But we've all been kind of led to believe things. Um, Our culture believes that gender is a matter of choice. And that's a very unusual belief. That's not a belief that even would have been plausible a few decades ago. And our culture assumes it now. Those are things of the left. But on the right, like I said, we have people believing bizarre, unfounded conspiracy theories. And we have rampant, unscientific thinking. We do. Our culture is weird right now. It's weird on both sides. There's, a, there's a weirdness everywhere. This isn't a right-left thing. And we've all seen this in our lives, haven't we? What this is called, the theological term for this is the noetic effect of sin, which means that sin makes us stupid. Okay, And we've all experienced this, right? The noetic effect of sin. Sin makes us stupid. The more we get enslaved to a particular sin, the more confused our thinking gets. You guys have all can own this, right? You've all experienced this. I've experienced this. If there's a particular sin that you really want, you really want to keep pursuing it, what you find is that your thinking becomes more and more darkened and you get more and more confused and you're able to come up with all sorts of weird excuses for inexcusable behavior and inexcusable thoughts. Anybody do it this week? Anybody feel the noetic effects of sin this week, right? Okay, this is all of us, right? This is a human condition. We're able to justify more and more things that are just unjustifiable. We see it sometimes within the church. One of the most profound examples is you'll have people that study the Bible. They know the Bible. They love the Bible. Their marriage gets hard. They start to want to justify their divorce. And they come up with all kinds of reasons that are not in Scripture. There are scriptural reasons for divorce, but they come up with all these different things. And and you're seeing like a strange unraveling of the person's ability to like Dissect truth. It's like, what happened? A year ago, this would have been straightforward. Now it's not straightforward. That's, it happens to all of us. It's the noetic effect of sin. So this is kind of like a death spiral, okay? When you look at this text. I mean, it's beautiful, and then it's got this flow, and it kind of explains so many things. But it's also dark, too. It's all. It's like a black hole. It's like a death spiral. That people are going further and further down into. What's the next step? Idolatry. Look at verse 23. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In the case of the Roman culture that Paul's writing to here, it was literal images, okay, literal carved stones of mortal people and birds and animals and creeping things, which is my favorite part, the creeping things. These idols, though, they promised them something. They didn't just worship things for no reason. These idols promised them security and significance and success and happiness, okay, these stone things. It wasn't just like they really liked stone creatures. It was these things, these gods that were represented by these things promised them something. We, too, guys, worship idols. We just don't worship carved ones. You know, we tend to look at these people and go, oh, primitive people, worshiping those stone creatures. You should have worshiped your looks or your career like me, right? No, that's crazy, right? We have idols, too. An idol is anything you look to, anything you trust in that's more important than God for your sense of security, significance, success, or happiness. Anything you trust in more than God for your sense of security, significance, success, or happiness. And it could be anything. It could be any good thing. can become an idol. It can become your work or your looks or relationships or reputation or you know your art or your your ministry or your education. It could be substances. It could be sex. It can be possessions. It can be the respect of other people. It could be having successful or obedient children. Okay? Anything that's more important to you, for your significance and your security and your success and your happiness. It can be any good thing. There's three things you should really know about idols, and it touches on this text. Idols are personal against God. Idols are weak. They never get you, give you what they say they're going to give you. And they're destructive. They're personal against God. They're personal against God. Look at verse 23. They exchange the glory of God for idols, right? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Okay, This is an exchange. This is God who made me, loves me more than anyone else in the world does. And I have, instead of loving him back or acknowledging him, I've traded him for stuff. I've traded him for Things right i've exchanged the truth about god for a lie it's an exchange it's an evil exchange it's a personal insult against god isn't it it's a huge one to say i know that you're god i know you're the one i have to think for everything and i don't want you i want this other thing instead it's personal it's a personal insult sin is personal i think sometimes we think about the law of god and we don't recognize that it's a personal offense against god you know when you get pulled over you're speeding or whatever and you get pulled over the cop doesn't pull over and you know he asks you like do you know why i pulled you over and do you know you know how fast you were going he doesn't start crying and say how could you do this to me okay cuz it's not personal <laughs> there's nothing personal here if he's taking it personal that's odd right but this is personal because this is more like a parent who's given you everything and and you reject them and you turn from them and you don't thank them and honor them and so everyone, guys, has a relationship with God. Sometimes we talk about, like, uh, you need a relationship with God. Everyone already has one. It's just most people have a very bad one. Okay, It's one in which we have offended him, we've insulted him, and it's a, it's a relationship that is not good. Secondly, idols are weak. They never give us what they promise. You guys testify to that? You testify that idols have never given you what they promise? The Romans could see that, you know, these little stone things. They're not doing it, right? David Foster Wallace He was a a novelist, and uh, he was not a Christian as far as I know, but he had amazing insight into idolatry, and he gave this commencement address. This is a commencement address like everybody should get. This is what he said. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you really tap your meaning to into, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you are enough. It's the truth. Worship your body, beauty, sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before you actually die. It really tapped into this, you know, that if we pursue anything other than God, those idols will eat us alive. Thirdly, idols are destructive. We're gonna see in a little bit in this text. There's 21 sins listed here, and they all started with idolatry. They all started with idolatry. So that's why the wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed even now, because we have turned our backs on God. We have seen the revelation of God, and we have discounted him. You might say, okay, well, how is the wrath of God being revealed? Because it was a rough year, but I wouldn't exactly say that it was the wrath of God coming down. There were lava or things that you would associate, you know, with the wrath of God. How is the wrath of God being revealed? Take a look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than creator. The way that God's wrath is being revealed even now is by God allowing people to have their sin, by giving them up. It says three times in this text, God gave them up, verse 24. God gave them up, verse 26. God gave them up, verse 28. That there's a thing called God's passive wrath. Have you ever heard of that? It's not a really common term. The passive wrath of God is God allowing people to, to have the sin and be enslaved and hardened by the sin they've been choosing all along, it's just to let them go. Okay, God's active wrath is the way He breaks into history. He's done it throughout history, and He'll do it at the very end, where He breaks into history to suddenly judge. But God's passive wrath is when He withdraws His sin-restraining power on sinners and allows them to harden in the sin that they persistently chosen. It's Him saying, "You want that? You don't want me? Okay." Right, that's called passive wrath. Have you guys heard of that? Pass the wrath of God. And that's what we're seeing in our culture right now. When we see this rampant moral confusion and immorality, it's God saying, you don't want me? Okay, here you go. Have your your sin. And we see that in verse 24, 26, and 28. Look at verse 24. God gave them up in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. We know that from the context, this is sexual sin. The important thing to realize from this text is, is that sexual sin is ultimately a worship disorder. It's super important to know that it's a worship disorder. So if you're currently dealing with lust, with any kind of sexual morality, pornography, things like that, the place that really you need to go into is what do you worship? It's a worship disorder. That's what, It's really about you and God. It's not just about the, the sexual sin. And I also say to you, if that's something you're dealing with, talk to one of us. If you're a woman, talk to one of the ladies here. If you're a man, talk to me or one of the other men here. We would love to help you walk free from that. Because sometimes people sit in church year after year after year and they just assume that, like, this is, they just need to maintain it, do maintenance, do it less, you know, somehow, you know, do sin management. We don't want to do sin management. When we get to Romans 6, we'll see we're called to freedom and we'd like to help you walk in freedom. So definitely talk to one of us because that's a rampant thing. God gave them up in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Paul is very clearly in this text talking about homosexual acts being sin, okay? And there's been a ton of tap dancing around this thing. I mean, this dance floor is taken, okay? Everybody's trying to dance around this text. This is very clearly talking about homosexual acts, okay? Uh, The term contrary to nature was a stock term in Jewish literature and in Stoic literature that spoke disapprovingly of homosexuality. The entire Old Testament makes it extremely clear. People say this is talking about some sort of abusive relationships or stuff like that. It's like, no, this is talking about homosexuality. And he says here that it's contrary to nature. What does he mean? It's against God's design. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female? God has a design, right? God has a design for sexuality that would be only within a cov- in the covenant of marriage with a man and a woman. And I say homosexual acts here because that's what he's condemning, okay? And our culture it's become extremely complicated to talk about these things because homosexuality has become not just something people do, but something they are, okay? And so then when you say that this is sinful, then you're saying like that... People that have that tendency, that temptation, those desires are some outside of the kingdom. It's not what this text is talking about. It's talking about the deeds, right? Some people are tempted to homosexual sin, and that temptation itself is not sin. We know that Jesus was tempted in all ways, but without sin. There's a way to be tempted by things, terrible things, and not actually sin, not actually give in to it mentally or physically. Our culture has made it a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think that's something we need to think about when we think about where we're going to meet in the future. Like, there may be a time when the schools are unavailable if a church teaches biblically on this issue, you know. And We don't need to gripe about that. We just need to live with it and figure out how we'd work around it. But the culture gives tremendous pressure to not only approve of homosexual activity, but to celebrate it, okay? It's not just approval, but celebration. And it seems unloving to disapprove of someone's sinful practice, right? And that's because our culture has viewed this practice as an identity, okay? And if it's the person's identity, then you can't accept them unless you accept what they do. But wouldn't you agree, guys, that there's a lot of people in your life that do things that you don't accept, but you still accept and love them? You have lots of people in your life like that? I have lots of people in my life that I don't approve of all the things they do, and I still love and accept them, right? These things don't go together, but our culture says, no, 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 this is their identity, that sexual activity somehow, and you guys think this is totally normal, and you know I do too because I live in this culture, but it's not immediately obvious why someone's sexual activity would be their identity. Like, why did identity get pinned there? There's no logical reason for it to be that way. You know, Since when do we approve of everything else people do before we value and love them? And so homosexual sin used to be something that people did. Now our culture is telling us that that's who people are. And that's just not a biblical way of looking at people, nor does it have a very long historical precedent. Okay. This is a new idea that people are defined by their sexual behavior. There are all kinds of people in your life that you approve of that you don't approve of what they do, but you still love and accept them. And really this isn't about what we approve of anyway, right? This is about what God approves of. And God's very clear in this text that homosexual behavior, homosexual acts, homosexual lust is sinful. And you can totally say that. I could totally say that if, if that's you. I could totally say that and not hate you. Right? I can say that and not hate you. I don't hate you. And I could totally say that and not be afraid of you. I'm not phobic. Okay? I'm just saying what the Bible says. And I think that would be something that might be really helpful for you to communicate to your friends that aren't believers or to those you know that do practice homosexuality is that, you know, I don't have to approve of everything you do in your life to love you, right? And we're like that with all our friends, you know? I don't approve of everything you guys do, and I don't hate you, and I'm not afraid of you, okay? And so one thing I also wanted to mention too is is that if you're if this is a temptation of yours, we'd love to talk about this with you. I mean, we've had tons of people in the church that this was a struggle of theirs, and um, we would love to be a help to those who wrestle with same-sex attraction. Um, this is something that doesn't do well by being kind of hidden in the dark and not shared with a friend, and it is not going to shock us at all. I will not be shocked. We've talked to tons of people that have this, this particular desire, this particular attraction, and God is gracious in his acts of redemption and you know we can learn how to walk in in holiness just like with pornography or any other issue god gave them up look at verse 28 god gave them up and since they did not see fit to acknowledge god god gave them up to a debased mind to do what what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? Have you guys been online at all lately? Okay. Okay. This is our culture, right? This is our culture. And I'm not even specifically talking necessarily about the sexual part. What really hit me in that list was the anger, the malice, and the strife, and the gossip, and the slander. I mean, if we think about the kinds of things that we see in our culture right now, it is an angry place. And a lot of Christians have justified their anger. They go, well, we're in a war, you know, and we can't be nice in a war. No one's telling you to be nice. People are telling you to be biblical. We can't be malicious and strifeful and all these things. I would ask you in that vein, what do you think your newsfeed is designed to do? I know I've mentioned this before. What do you guys think? The newsfeed that you're on, whether it's a social media newsfeed or that' certain websites for news, what do you think your newsfeed is designed to do in you? Because it's designed to do something in you. You want to know how to know? Look at the comments. That's what it's designed to do in you. Does anybody like me? You read the first two lines and you go to the comments? That's my, my habit. If you read the comments, you will see what that newsfeed's designed to do. That's what it's designed to do. That's what it's perfectly calibrated to do. And you look through the, the comments and you see the hate and the strife and all that stuff. And what you're seeing is what that thing does. And if that's the kind of heart you want, then keep feeding it that trough. Right? Okay. When we see all around us this immorality in our culture, one thing that's really interesting about Romans 1 is that we tend to see sin in our culture, you know, see the homosexuality ramp in our culture and all these other things. We see that list of 21 sins there, and we think, man, our culture is so bad. God, God's going to judge this. God's going to bring wrath on this. But you know what Romans 1 tells us? It tells us that this is the wrath of God, Okay. It's not just saying that those sins will get the wrath of God. It's saying those sins in our culture are the wrath of God revealed. The reason why it is the way it is started with ungodliness. It started with us turning away from God and not wanting God in our minds. And so that's what we have. You know, what we see in our culture is God saying, you don't want me? Okay, see how it works without me. And when you look at verses 29 through 31, you're seeing a taste of what it's like for God to withdraw his, his grace and his restraining power on a people. That's what you're seeing. And you know what it's like? It's a taste of hell. Isn't that what it is? I mean, read verses 29 through 31. If that isn't a taste of hell, I don't know what is, right? That's what it's like without the presence of God. And guys, if you're not a believer, if you're not trusting Jesus, if you're not, you know, repentantly walking with him, I just say the last thing you want is for God to say, you don't want me? Okay. That is the last thing you want. The last thing you want is for him to say, okay, your will be done. And to have that done eternally. That's what we're looking at. So how should we live in this? How should we live in this time? So this is kind of like a like a death spiral. This is like a black hole. And we're, we're the church. And we've been like, our outpost is on the edge of this black hole. You guys see Interstellar? you know, it's that kind of a deal. So you got this black hole, right? And people that are just in godlessness kind of going down the spiral and we're in a ship and we're posted right on the edge of this thing. Like, what are we called to do? I'll tell you what we're not called to do is just kind of like rail against them, right? That doesn't help. Like, look at all those people, you know? No, that's not what we're called to do. What are we called to do? Could we throw them a lifeline of some kind? We've been assigned guys a very unique and special post in history. We could complain about it. We could complain that like somebody pushed the crazy button in this place. Or we could say, you know what? God chose us to be here during this time in this place to minister to these people at this critical time in history. So what do we do? What are the lifelines we could throw? What are some ways we could point them to Christ? I've got a few. I just want to give you a couple lifelines real quick. And these lifelines are based on they're the opposite basically of how the death spiral works. Okay. So we're going to first one is we should throw them the lifeline of acknowledging God. Okay. We're here to point out to people something they already know or, or used to know, which is there's a God who made everyone and everything. And he's good. We're here to point people to something that God had made plain to them at some point in their life. And that's his existence. And there's very reasonable ways to do this. I'll give you three real quick. There's the existence of the universe. Okay. This thing needs an explanation. Okay. When you look at the universe and we learn more and more about it, there's a need to explain where it came from. And you can't say, well, I believe in evolution. That's way later. Okay. Where did this come from? Okay. And there turns out to be no good explanation. Bring them to me if you have one. There's no good explanation actually to where this universe came from. And I could unpack that. Maybe I will later. I'll send you something on that. Okay. Next one would be the fine tuning of the universe. It turns out that our universe has about three dozen fundamental constants, things of like molecular weight and things of gravity, basic details to our universe, that if these three dozen things weren't perfectly tuned like a bunch of knobs, life couldn't exist here. Somebody needs to explain that, you know, that needs an explanation. That's, that's strange, okay, that life could be, even be here is amazing. Third one, moral intuitions that we have. We all have, believe it or not, we all have a moral law within us that tells us how we should live. We don't necessarily do it, but it tells us how we should live, and we didn't write it, and neither did our parents or anyone else. We have something within us that points to a creator. Or you could go more simply. You could be just like, look at this place. What explains this? Look at you. What explains you? You guys are such strange, strange monkeys. You know, you're just so unusual. What explains it? What explains personality? And what explains all your complex emotions and your crazy ideas? And where did this come from? This needs an explanation. So throw people the lifeline of acknowledging God. Second, throw them the lifeline of gratitude. I mean, when you look at this beautiful, amazing place, aren't you thankful? I think everybody is. Everybody likes the idea of gratitude and thankfulness, right? We're thankful. Who do we thank? You ever thought about that? You guys ever thought about that Thanksgiving is the most awkward holiday for somebody that doesn't believe in God? Who are we thinking exactly, you know, for all this? I mean, for thinking for existence, not just that you have shoes and stuff like that, but you have feet in your shoes, you have bodies. It's crazy, right? G.K. Chesterton was a Catholic writer in the 20th century, and he was converted largely because he felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude and realized he had no one to thank. And that made him start going like, there's got to be somebody to thank. That led him down the line to finding, finding the Lord. It was amazing. So throw him the lifeline of gratitude. Throw him the lifeline of worship. Point out to people, like that quote of David Foster Wallace, that everybody worships something. I think people can understand that. And they can understand how the idols have let him down. Guys, Jesus is the only one truly worthy of our worship. Jesus is the only God that if you worship him, he'll satisfy your every need. And he'll forgive your every sin. No idol's going to do that. No other God's going to do that. He will satisfy your every need and forgive your every sin. Jesus is better. He's better than anything you're called to leave behind. Even if that's a very difficult thing. I mean, we talked about same-sex attraction and all kinds of other issues. Jesus is better than anything he calls you to leave behind. Far better. He is the treasure hidden in the field. You should be willing to sell all Do anything to have him. And that's what we're going to proclaim tonight when we take the Lord's Supper, is that he's better. And what's really cool is, you know, Romans 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed. Romans 1 18. Verse 17 said that the righteousness of God is revealed. So not only in Romans do we have the the wrath of God is revealed, but his righteousness is revealed. And that righteousness that's revealed, we talked about a couple weeks ago. Is the righteousness he'll give you tonight if you trust in Jesus. It's not about you're going to renovate your life and eventually he's going to approve of you. If you trust in Jesus Christ tonight, you will immediately have the righteousness of Jesus. He will view you as if you'd lived Jesus' perfect life. Because he didn't exchange for us. You know, this passage talks about this dark exchange, right? We exchanged God for trinkets. We exchanged God for sin. And how did God respond? He exchanged his son for us. Isn't that crazy? That's an insane love. That's an amazing love, isn't it? We have exchanged God for sin. And his response, this is not my response. His response is, I'm going to exchange my son for you. Our exchange was met by his exchange. On the cross, Jesus Christ made an exchange for you. He took your sin and suffered your death. Verse 32 says that all who practice such things deserve death. And that's us. And he, he took our death on the cross. And then he gave us his righteousness so we can enjoy his victory. I just love that as we think about, you know, the essence of sin is exchanging God for idols. And the ex- essence of the gospel is that God exchanged his son for us. It's amazing. It's amazing. If that's your hope, It asks you to take the Lord's Supper with us. If that's your hope. That's your trust. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we thank you for this opportunity to take the bread and the cup and not only remember, but be filled and strengthened to receive fresh help and health, and energy and filling of your spirit. And we pray you do that through this, that we eat this bread and drink this cup. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would fill us in a new way. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take it together. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Feed on him in your heart with faith and thanksgiving. Let's take it together. Let's take the cup together. The the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Let's take it together. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful not nearly as grateful as we should be, but we're grateful. And we want to honor you and we want to worship you. We want to do all the opposite of what we have done in the past. We want to give you our whole selves in worship right now. We pray, Lord, that the worship of our hearts and our mouths and our our very lives would be pleasing to you. Lord, we know in Christ that we are righteous before you. We know that you love and accept us in a way that we never could have been before, and we can't add to. But, Lord, we can bring you pleasure, and we pray that we would tonight as we worship, as we fellowship, as we love our friends and families tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.